Hello, and welcome to Me Too. Thank you for listening. My name is Fei-Fei Ning, and this is episode one of season five. This week on the episode, we have Duke University senior Elaine Thomas performing the monologue, Two. After we hear this piece, our wonderful host, Nicole Stepovich, will be sitting down with Professor Adrian Lynn-Smith to discuss the piece and the theme of Black womanhood. Now, here's Elaine performing, Two. My soul meets at the intersection of black and woman. And at that intersection, I have found so much power. But I admit that at that intersection, I have also found pain. I found that one of the greatest anxieties of being a black woman is the worry of being too. Too big, too loud, too angry, too demanding, too smart, too powerful, too. I've spent so much time on this campus, on this earth, if I'm being honest, trying not to be too much of anything. It is hard work being just the right amount of everything. Never too much that you make anyone uncomfortable, but always just enough that they know that you belong. Raise your hand in class, but don't answer too many questions. Play your sport well, but don't take too many shots. Make A's, but not too many. Support a cause, but not too passionately. I always know when I've gone too far. Everyone in the room is looking in their peripheral at the people around them with nervous smiles on their faces and slight fear in their eyes. They're all uncomfortable, but they're not allowed to say it. No one can tell you to your face that they think you need to calm down or that you talk too loudly that you take the inequity in America a little too seriously, especially because everyone at Duke is so liberal and we all practice tolerance and acceptance and no, of course we aren't racist. We value all people. We respect women. But are we? Do we? Do you? I remember so vividly the moment when I realized that there were limits on who I was allowed to be. I remember the hurt and confusion. The girl who let me know that I was too much probably doesn't even know that she did it. She probably has no idea how strongly I felt her microaggression, but I did. I felt it. It seemed so small, so simple, but the implications it had on how I viewed the world this campus and myself were anything but small. She told me to be quiet, to stop talking. In a moment when I was expressing how uncomfortable the comments of one of my peers had made me feel, she said that I was talking too loudly and that the girl might hear. She said that it wasn't nice to speak ill of people. And my thought was, even if those people are vile, Even if an hour from now I'll walk up on you having a conversation with the same people about the same girl and the same feelings that you told me I wasn't allowed to have. Even if that girl is sitting not too far away and there's the same risk that she would hear you as there was that she might have heard me. At the end of that day, I thought to myself, why was I not allowed to have that conversation? How come I couldn't be upset? In the next few months, 
I found myself in a position many more times in which I was not allowed to feel, to speak, to be. A position where I was told that I should hold back, calm down, be more understanding and patient. And every time I watched someone else's feelings be validated, their pain understood, and all I could feel was rage. I don't think the worst part of being misunderstood was being told that I was too much. I think the worst part was the girl who showed, if not straight up told, me that I was. She was, excuse me, is a nice girl. She's passionate and kind. She fights for those who find themselves wrapped up in the injustices of the world. She's an ally, if you will. (laughs) But she never gave me room to speak. Never, not once. She never heard me. She was always so busy talking, so wrapped up in her idea of what was good and right her definition of justice that she never heard mine. And how do you tell the woke that they're actually not that woke at all? How do you tell the ally to just shut up and listen? (laughs) The problem isn't her, isn't just her. The problem isn't just being told that I'm talking too much or too loudly. The problem is every single person who has ever told me not to do something because they couldn't. The problem is every single coach who has sat me on bench to play someone less capable than I. The problem is every side eye and exasperated sigh. The problem is every caricature of the angry black woman. The problem is that the world and this campus wants our ideas, power, work, but not us. They want to build themselves off our backs, but they don't want to hear or see us. It is so exhausting being one of the least desired groups on this campus, but it is not something that we talk about because Duke is liberal and accepting and progressive and a ton of other fucking buzzwords that I'm so sick of hearing. Because in reality, most of the population is faking it and nobody is actually listening. And I just want to be able to fucking breathe sometimes. I want to step out of bed in the morning and go be great without having to worry about whose toes I might step on today. I want to make the dean's list every single semester and be proud of that shit. Because it's a fucking accomplishment and who cares if you don't like it? Who cares how small you want me to be? I want to be too much of everything and not just enough of anything. I want to be good at math and not be afraid to say it. I want to be able to list my strengths and skills without looking over my shoulder wondering if anyone will think I'm showing off. Because no one ever tells a white man that he's too talented. But God forbid a black woman ever show a glimmer of pride. And I know this sounds a lot like a rant now, but I just want you all to know that today you probably made someone feel smaller than themselves. I want you to know that when you told her she was too loud, you told her to exist a little less. And when she was proud of her work, but you rolled your eyes. You told her to take up a little less space. 
And when you demanded that she calm down, you said her feelings weren't that valid. But also know that this monologue isn't for you. I write this monologue for every black girl who has ever been shushed, silenced, calmed, reprimanded, shrank, or closed out. You may speak as loudly as you like. You may scream for everything you've ever believed in. You may cry for all the pain that you've ever been caused. You may cheer for all your successes. You do not have to be less so that they may be comfortable. You deserve to be more because you are. You are greater than their wildest dreams. You cannot be contained. You are not here because you are enough. You are here because you are extraordinary. So damn it, be extraordinary. Extraordinarily fit, passionate, loving, kind, crazy, loud, fast, smart, short, tall, big, little you. Because at the intersection of black and woman is power. And at the center of your soul is greatness. Hello, everyone. Today, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Adrian Lentz-Smith, who is quite familiar with podcasts, and I'll allow you to expand on that statement and introduce yourself. So if you wouldn't mind, um, could you please begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and about your work or your passions at Duke and beyond? Sure. As you mentioned, my name is Adrienne Lentz-Smith, and I'm an associate professor in the history department and in the Department of African and African-American Studies. For the last couple of years, I have been part of a program through Duke's Keenan Institute for Ethics called The Ethics of Now, which began as an in-person, three times a semester series of community conversations Since the whole world has moved to Zoom, the ethics of now became a webinar. And so over the spring, we did a series of conversations about issues of importance to folks in the Durham community and beyond. So that's one spot that I've been podcasting. I've also appeared on a few other podcasts about history, about politics, about race, in part because One of my passions, so I love history, and as I've said many a time lately, I became a historian in part because I realized I could read other people's diaries and not get in trouble for it. Um, (laughs) But I also think that we have, here in the U.S. and beyond the U.S., a really impoverished sense of our own history and, and need to build our capacity for historical thinking, for thinking about contingency, for contextualizing, for just knowing what has happened in the past in order to have a sense of the possibilities in the present and the future. Exactly. Thank you so much for that introduction. So I wanted to begin by first asking just about immediately after hearing the monologue, I'm interested to know what your initial thoughts were and if there were any aspects or maybe any specific lines that stood out to you particularly. Yeah, well, one of my first thoughts was that this monologue feels to me very much like the kind of things about who we are, about who we want to be, about what we 
learn to ask of or demand of others that you figure out and work out in college, you know, ideally, if you're lucky. And that there's a way that this particular monologue speaks of this woman's frustration, but it also speaks of her growing sense that she deserves to get to be herself and that she's learning how to articulate her request and or demand that people who claim to care about her allow her to be herself, you know? And that's great. It's hard but it's important. So going off of that, it seems that there is this struggle for young Black women especially because in the monologue, they use the word to a lot and as in T-O-O, as an excess of. And it seems that there's this constant grappling between fighting for visibility as a Black woman, but then once you gain this visibility, having to step back so as not to be overwhelming or overbearing. And so you're facing being too much while also being rendered invisible. So I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. I mean, I think you've put your finger on something. The way that I have described it in the past, and I think borrowing from another Black woman academic friend is that you find yourself in all kinds of spaces, social, political, casually moving through the world, in which as a Black woman, one is either hyper-visible or invisible. Yeah. Um, And what's really a mind trip is when those things happen at the same time. I think how you're visible or people feel that you are available to them changes with age, although I actually might back up from that. But I do feel that now as a, you know, basically middle-aged mother of two, the way that people read my body and feel that they have access to my body or feel compelled to comment on it has changed a great deal. But as a younger person, I found it exhausting. Part of that is just the casual everyday sexism of the world. Part of that would exist whether I were a Black woman or not. But it's also the case that historically, Black women's bodies have been used for labor and exploited for pleasure. And Black women were read through their bodies distinct from and above their personhood to an extent that white women certainly were not. And so I think we all live with the legacies of that. And growing up in the American South in a period when people didn't always have, or at least when I didn't have access to a fully-fledged language of critique, I found trying to figure out how to call that a problem and negotiate it really exhausting, right? And it came down to little things. It came down to, remember having a fight with a guy in the food court of the mall where I worked and he would come in all the time about whether or not I was stuck up for not saying hello when men catcalled me walking through the mall. Oh, wow. And me having to explain, I have no obligation to speak to a stranger who just demands that I do so. Right. That's a completely different problem from being ignored in a classroom, even though I just raised my hand and spoke. But it was it was exhausting all the same. Yeah. And there's actually a line in the monologue that 
kind of echoes exactly what you were saying. And I think it's perhaps the most important lines in the piece. And it goes, quote, It is so exhausting being one of the least desired groups on this campus, but it is not something that we talk about, end quote. And I think that the line really rings true, not only on Duke's campus, but just in a lot of public spheres in general. So have you found any connections to this line in the portrayal of Black women in the media at all? Yes. And then I say that with a qualifier, because I actually think that there's been a counter move, certainly recently, maybe it's longer and I've just started paying attention to it, where you see these assertions and embrace of Black women's beauty, right? And of all kinds, right? So it doesn't have to conform to any one look. I think that Black women themselves have become very deft at using the media and using social media to counter very boring and kind of homogenous norms of what beauty is or or should be. But, you know, I think people talk a lot about how Black women weren't, except in like movies with Morris Chestnut, right? But how Black women weren't romantic leads in mainstream movies. They were always the sassy best friend right? Yeah. Um, Or the maternal figure or what have you. And I think that inability or that unwillingness to portray Black women and Black teenagers, right, if we think about teen movies in a variety of ways, actually did impoverish a lot of non-Black folks' ability to think of Black women in a variety of roles, think of them romantically. And I think it intensified a sense, sometimes within Black communities, that, as you said, that Black women were less desirable. Mm -hmm. I used to roll my eyes a little bit at the language when people would talk about Black women as queens. Again, this kind of counter language. But at some point when I was like, you know what? I like it. I like the overtop celebration of Black women's beauty and stature. I don't always like the calling upon or like the invocation of black women's strength right um yeah not that i don't think that there isn't something profoundly resilient and amazing and and just like dedicated to keep on keeping on about black women in history but i find that it's a little bit like calling healthcare workers heroes if we tell you you're strong if we tell you you're a hero we don't have to do anything to help you yeah and that really seems to me um infuriatingly lazy and terrible. Yeah. And there was an interesting point in the monologue that related to that, where the author brings up that this girl who quieted her, who said she was too much of something or another, was actually considered an ally and she was known to fight for social justice issues. And so the author recommended that she, quote, just shut up and listen. And I think especially in the last few months when there's been so much talk about being an ally, whether it be to the Black Lives Matter movement or some other cause, there's been a lot of decentering of the Black voice and especially of Black women's voices. So I wanted to know if you have any advice for keeping people of color and specifically Black women central to these movements, but not necessarily 
placing the burden on them. And then, as you said before, just leaving it to them and kind of taking a step back and taking a lazier approach. You know, I think that there are a few things. I mean, in some ways, the just shut up and listen is not quite as, um, I wouldn't necessarily put it that directly, but I understand and endorse the the underlying sentiment. I remember having someone, sort of college-aged white man, tell me that he'd been reading a lot of Black Twitter and it was really interesting and he wanted to do something, but he really felt that he didn't know how to jump into the conversation and that sometimes it really bothered him because it didn't seem like people wanted him in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And the the response that I began with with him was, well, maybe this is a good opportunity to learn what it's like to sit back and listen and to teach yourself important lessons by following a conversation instead of leaping into a conversation when you don't know as much as the other people having it, you know? So that's, that's a similar sentiment. Yeah. I mean, as much as you don't want to put it back on the person that you're endeavoring to help, I do think there's something to be said for beginning with the question, what can I do to help you? Ask them what you can give them, right? Yeah. So the struggle between Black activists and non-Black people wanting to work with them or on their behalf, it's always been, it's a long, complex negotiation. And there have been, you know, critiques of white liberalism and its blinders as long as there's been white liberalism. Think about Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, which is directed to Southern white liberals. It's not directed to the segregationists who put him in jail in the first place. And it's basically, it's an argument that their allyship is pallid and inadequate, and they need to ask more of themselves in their work among white communities and also alongside black activists. I am slightly skeptical. I don't love the language of ally in part because I'm one of these people who really believes in changing kind of behavior instead of hearts and minds, because I don't have a lot of faith in people holding on to those changes in their hearts and minds. But also because the language of allyship makes it seem like you're only doing something on behalf of Black folks, when actually ridding the world of white supremacy in the United States context, fixing American democracy is something that pays dividends for everyone in the country. It's like, come to this, do civil rights activist work, do anti-racist work, not because you need to like give me something, do it because you need to free yourself from the chains that you also live within when white supremacy is pervasive. That's very interesting. I never really thought about it that way, but... That makes a lot of sense because when you lift up, you know, a part of a whole, you're lifting up the entire whole. So that's a very powerful statement that you made. I also just wanted to know if there was anything that you could tell your younger self, anything that you would tell maybe young Black girls, any type of advice, what would you tell them? So as a young person, I was arrogant to the point of ridiculousness about some things and incredibly insecure about other things. 
right? So in a world where people were, you know, constantly trying to say that I was extra or too much to use the language of the, of the podcast, like I would be like, well, I'm extra smart because I think I'm pretty much the smartest person I know. That was absurd. <laughs> that was, a, that I was disabused of that self-perception when I got to college but being disabused of that self-perception gave me a space to step back and say, okay, I don't feel required to prove myself through my intellect. I'm not the smartest person I know, but I'm still pretty intelligent. And I still like myself a whole, whole lot. And that kind of embrace of myself, comfort with myself, knowing that I liked myself and liking myself wasn't pinned to any one trait about myself was really good armor and protection from moving through a world that wasn't necessarily going to like me as much as I liked me. And so one of the pieces of advice that I would give, not because I didn't have it, but because I now recognize how good it was for me, would be to say, take a pause, look at yourself, love yourself and like yourself, and don't let the world tear away at that, you know? So that's the first thing. The second piece of advice that I would give to young Black girls, pieces of advice that I've given my daughter, who is just, she's a tween, she's middle school aged. But one of the first things that I said to her that I I thought was really helpful was, you know, she came home, someone had called her weird. And I was like, two things. People think that you're weird because they are ignorant. There are a lot of things that other people don't know or haven't experienced or don't understand. And their initial reaction will be to take their ignorance and their inexperience and their lack of understanding and act like it's your problem, not theirs. But no matter what they say, it's not your problem. It's their problem. And you can decide what you're going to do with them so long as you understand that about yourself. And then I think more pithily, what I said to her was, look, weird is a word that boring people use to describe interesting people. Ah. I think those two things together are nice and kind of reorient one's sense of the world and of norms and normal. And I think that's it. Thank you. I think that'll be very helpful for young girls and just also for anyone listening to this podcast. And so just before we wrap up, I wanted to know if you had any last thoughts on the monologue or anything that you weren't able to say that you'd like to leave people with. Sure. I mean, a variant on what I just said to you, which, you know, one of the questions that we ask ourselves as folks committed to building a better world and whether we do that through our profession or just through our daily relationships there's always this question of when do you get people told and when do you not? When do you let something go? When do you just walk away? When do you stand there and have a lecture? And there are going to be different moments when you opt for different things and that's okay. It's not your job to make everybody not stupid all the time, right? You don't walk away from it every time, but sometimes just to preserve your own sanity, you walk away. The other part of this, you know, the woman in the monologue mentioned that she was tired of pretending to be 
less than who she was in order to keep other people from feeling bad or self-conscious or in order to be, you know, sort of more socially acceptable. And I say follow being tired of that with just sort of coming out singing, you know, be the most full version of yourself in the spaces where that's possible. Make it possible in spaces where it doesn't seem like it is. What I always say is, you know, we all have various expressions of ourselves, right? I am not exactly in the middle of a classroom the person that I am when I'm sitting in my front yard drinking fizzy water and talking about the world. But in neither of those settings do I feel like I am less than myself. And so embracing your own multitudes and being comfortable with your own like little weird jagged pieces and internal contradictions is also also necessary and important. Yeah, thank you so much for that response. And also just thank you for joining us and taking the time to have this important discussion with us. And we're very excited to be able to share it with the Duke community. Thank you, Elaine and Professor Lentz-Smith, for being on the show and discussing the piece. As always, please share your own stories through our website, which can be found at metoomonologuesduke.org. We are on the iTunes store, and we would love it if you left us a review. Let us know what you think. You can also find the show on Facebook at Me Too Monologues. Me Too is produced by Nicole Stepovich and myself, Fei Fei Ning. The music for the podcast comes from Chen Xiaoting. Thanks for listening.